Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Never have Jay-Z and Gavin <laughs> been put in the same sentence. Own it, honey. Own it. Hello, you're very welcome along to our new season of The Group Chat, described by the Sunday Times as an entertaining late night gab fest. <laughs> well, no pressure Never there. Word has no been pressure there, Sunday Times. Uh, Thanks for teeing us up. I am news correspondent Richard Chambers. I'm joined as always by my fellow news correspondent, Zara King. Hello, how are you? Good. And our political correspondent, fresh from the Fianna Fáil thinking, that is Gavin Riley. So fresh. So <laughs> fresh. Literally fresh unboxed. So yeah. we're, we're, we're back. We're back. Yeah. Uh, we had an entertaining sort of um, sort of pre-return mm. at Electric Picnic. Like a soft launch for season yeah. four. To, yeah. to yes. sort of iron out all the kinks. Yes. Um, you know. we call it? Did we? I would call it that. <laughs> did, did, did we iron <laughs> out the kinks? Yeah, I don't think <laughs> okay. so. Uh, how was summer, guys? Really good. Yeah, good. Like, I feel like it was quite busy, though. I feel like it's been mm. a busy summer. Um, I did get away for a little holiday. It was break. Um, I went to my cousin's wedding. I think I said this on the other podcast as well. Um, yeah, it was good. Um, nice to get the break and then back. Kind of, I'm still making the documentary, so kind of double jobbing. So it's been busy. How was your summer? Great. Yeah, I was working for most of us. Uh, picnic was great. So thanks to everybody who actually turned Absolutely, out. Absolutely. Yeah, thank yeah. you for yeah. us. Uh, so come in Strad Valley, Valley in a very, very hot tent mm. uh, yes. on what was a sun-baked version of Electric Picnic very rarely. So. Gorgeous though. Absolutely. Yeah, and, and of a Sunday lunchtime, there's always a quite a number of people who are just rocking a little bit of cosmetic sunburn at that mm-hmm. era as well. So it was nice to, for everyone to come in and say hello to us, but we were delighted with the, the numbers that came out. So if you're one of them, thank you How so much for coming. You were away for a bit. Yeah, in good old summer, do, uh, did a road trip to France. Uh, so brought the, the kids to France, did five days on a campsite in Brittany, and then we did two days in Disneyland, uh, which went Aww. down a huge treat. Uh, the almost two-year-old is now an enormous Toy Story fan, and it's entirely the fault of Disneyland. So we, we brought home, she, she sits down, she does, yeah, um, well, the four-year-old did, actually, the four-year-old yes. was, four-year-old went on the Tower of Terror. Yes. Which, which makes it sound like I'm a really irresponsible parent. She loved it. She guy. had a ball. Yeah, she loved it. She had a great time. Like, she loves, like, a lot of the, the heavy-duty movement and stuff like that, loves a roller coaster, so she had a whale of a time. Oh. And now uh, the other one uh, keeps picking up the remote, because if you have a Virgin Media TV360 remote, you know, you can do the, like, talk into the remote mm. and do oh, what you yeah, want. Yeah. She has seen us do that. That's all she's ever known oh. as a kid. She now picks up the remote and goes, Buzz Lightyear. Buzz Lightyear. Oh. Uh, so branding works, everybody. There you there go. You go. Yeah. Fantastic. Stuff. Well, if you're watching this uh, of a Wednesday night, you'll be aware now that we are on a new home. Virgin Media One. Mm. Buzzing to be here on Virgin so, Media One. We're sitting on the grown-ups table. We have <laughs> yeah. made it to the senior <laughs> yes, curling senior standard curling. of televisual podcasting. Um, but as you said, Zara, it has been a busy summer. Yeah. There's been a lot happening news-wise. And one of the stories of the summer, which has come back into focus again this week, is really around the issue of the Gardaí criminal justice and public safety. Mm-hmm. Particularly in Dublin, it was over the summer. We saw a huge focus, big spotlight uh, on Dublin. You had headlines, you know, varying from Dublin's fear city to the rare L crimes because of a spate of violent attacks. General feeling of a lack of safety, uh, a general sense of fear of intimidation. Of course, it all started really with the assault on the American tour- tourist, mm-hmm. uh, Stephen Termini. And then this week, 
sort of it's kind of like a, a, as a crime trend it has migrated west to Galway mm. uh, where we've seen a little bit of attention there so we're going to walk it through from the start I mean Dublin to start off with it was really that's where it all started off a couple of months ago yeah. in terms of the big spotlight on safety. Um, it did bring a lot of stuff up though, didn't it? This, this, this sort of conversation around public safety and, and crime yes, in Dublin. It did. And I was quite taken aback actually by the response from the public in terms of like people coming out and telling their own personal stories of not feeling safe, particularly in Dublin, but not just Dublin, in other cities and urban mm-hmm. centres all over the country. And actually it's important to say from the outset, this is not just a Dublin problem. Mm. There's definitely feedback from people in, you know, big and small towns up and down the country who say that they actually feel like their city centres um, are not places they like to frequent after dark or even into the early evening. So this is a big problem for the government. It's a big problem um, for communities for it's a big problem for Garda Siakona who in a lot of cases guards on the ground will tell you that um, they don't have enough numbers now the government and uh, the management of Garda Siakona will tell you we have plenty of people and we're filling the rosters no problem but then boots on the ground guards will tell you when you talk to them that they know themselves there's not enough of them around and that the visibility isn't strong enough you know and there's so many members of the public who say that when they walk through the city they don't see a guard on a street corner they don't feel like there's someone that they can talk to or report Mm. Uh, no me to jump the timeline but like the very fact that they're now appointing street wardens mm. uh, to try and monitor activity in Dublin's north inner city uh, at certain hours like is that not just proof positive that they don't have guard numbers because if you had enough guards to do the go on the beat and and you know ensure safe streets and the likes why would you need to pay six civilians who effectively have no power to do anything except walk around mm. with a high-vis vest mm-hmm. it's like is that not just proof positive that the numbers aren't there well it's clear that the talking point for solutions has been around guard numbers. It's become almost the quick thing which everybody across the political spectrum shows. It shows that there's a universal agreement there that there should be more guard mm. or visible. But whether or not it actually solves a lot of the issues is probably something which needs further examination and a little bit look under the hood of it rather than it just being, eh, we just throw 200 more guards into Dublin, the whole thing is going to be tickety-boo. Uh, and I think that's something which I think politically has fallen on the doorstep, Gav, of Helen McEntee. Yeah. That there was, a, there was, first of all, in terms of guard visibility, that's one thing. Mm. There was a lack of visibility from her for the start of the problem. Mm. And then when she did appear in the media and when she did crop up, there was criticism of her over there too. Yeah, specifically because when she was making some of the visits to the North Inner City to sort of display how safe it is, of course, she being the Minister for Justice, she would have a guard of protection at all times anyway. And the optics of somebody notionally in casual dress walking around the North Inner City trying to prove how safe it is when you're flanked by guards, most of whom you imagine are, are packing heat anyway. I mean, of course, that person is safe when they've got a ring of steel around them. Like there's no, it's not yeah. a comparable mm-hmm. sort of thing at all. I mean, it, it's a tricky situation for the likes of Helen McEntee to be in because obviously she is responsible in an overall holistic sense for the safety of the nation and for ensuring sort of, you know, peace in our times, if you like. Mm-hmm. But she's not responsible for Garda rostering and for the assignment of manpower. It's not up to her to decide who is assigned to desk duty, you know, stamping passport forms and who is actually out on the beat. And it's a very tricky thing to be notionally responsible for, you know, the boots on the ground when actually you're not responsible for organising which boots go where at all. Mm. I would say though one of the big criticisms, I was in Store Street when Helen McIntyre did that walkabout the first time after the Stephen Tremini attack. And, you know, I was the one who asked her, would you feel safe walking around Dublin? And she looked at me and she said, yeah, I would. And I said, would you really though? And she was like, yeah, I would feel safe walking around Dublin at night. And, you know, that really annoyed people. Like people were quite mm. frustrated by mm. that because uh, of course you're going to say, look, what was Helen McIntyre supposed to say? No, I don't feel safe. You know, like obviously she has to have a vote of confidence in the city and all the things. So you can understand why on some level she has no choice but to say that she would feel safe. But I think in the same breath, what really annoyed people was that it just sort of almost 
dismissed then that like there was a legitimate concern there and that, mm. you know, people's feelings are valid. If people are telling yeah. you they do not feel safe, that feeling is valid. Yeah. And that is one thing which actually the guards um, have actually pointed to is the perception of yeah. mm. lack of safety is as much of a problem mm. in some ways as the actual lack of safety itself. That I think was one of the worst received photo ops yeah, well. um, in recent political history, that one, the walkabout. Mm. And she has stuck to that story about feeling safe because anytime she's come out since then, she has said, well, look, we have issues here and we need to deal with them. But I do want to stress again that Dublin is a safe place, despite the fact that places yeah. like the US Embassy mm-hmm. decided to come out and say, not that safe. Yeah, well, actually, I think that that, that advice was slightly overstated by some corners of the media that they ah, were just yeah. talking about, you know, making sure that you know where your belongings are and don't have any visible signs of, you know, extraneous wealth, which is pretty commonplace for, for uh, a lot of people. And, you know, we had a massive... American visitors coming over for the the college football game, mm-hmm. like know, Notre Dame versus is, Navy. The real problem here is, I remember speaking to Michael Martin a few days after that. I think actually was the day the warning came out. I did a piece with Michael Martin, and I said to him, "Can you ever remember another time when Ireland was actually on a warning list for another country, or like you know that their their tourists were being warned to be safe well, in Ireland?" Yeah. And apart from the situation, obviously in Northern Ireland, which is a totally separate thing, he couldn't actually recall another time where we were on a warning list of another country. Like mm. that, it, it, it's a fair observation. You, you touched I on a really that's quite you, a bad turning point. You, you touched us. on a very interesting point though a second ago about the perception of whether people feel safe or not and a, a really important and, and significant part about all of this is perceptions mm. because actually although nobody's denying that the the horror of the attack on Stephen Termenia and everyone else who's been uh, met with the hands of violence on the inner city and in Galway and elsewhere in the last couple of weeks but actually statistically speaking there doesn't appear to be any actual uptick in serious incidents of crime that they are no more dangerous now mm. than they have been at any other time taking out the, the pandemic period which means that a lot of the the response since and the 10 million euro Garda overtime and a lot of the political heat that's been attracted by all of this is all ultimately about perception. It's mm-hmm. that suddenly there's the image out there that Dublin is becoming an unsafe place when in fact it is no more or less unsafe than it's been for years. There's also, the, we'll talk briefly about the political sort of response to it because you mentioned the plan there. And there's also that, what was a 51 point plan as well then for mm. tackling all of the issues around Dublin and, and, and crime mm. and safety. Catchy. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's like when you can condense it down to 51 points, you know, you have a good plan. Mm. Um, but one of the things initially as part of the 10 million euro strategy was included in the Department of Justice and on the Garda press release on it was the fact that armed Gardaí would be sort of involved in a sort of an on standby thing. And you don't you don't put things in statements unless you want people to pick up on them, right? Mm. You don't, yeah. right? So <laughs> then as soon as everybody picked up on it in the media and said, well, the armed Gardaí are being drafted in to handle the situation in terms of public safety, which is effectively being driven by kids, uh, and teenagers effectively mm. Mm. in Dublin um, there was a huge backlash to it people laughed it off and then there was a bit of well look that's been overblown by the media and by the press in terms of how this has gone down which is not really, really true you it was just put, a straightforward restatement of what was in the press release mm-hmm. you don't put it down um, on a press release unless you think it's going to go down well or you think that this is going to be something which is taken and up you well and you can be damn sure those press releases were checked and checked yeah like they were proofread multiple times mm. before they were sent out so like everyone knew what was written in them when they were sent out especially, especially yeah. given that this is trying to cater to people's feelings rather than dealing with any necessary root underlying causes because it, perception is so much of this. Yeah. Turning to Galway, um, yeah. Zara, you've been looking at this. What, what's actually been happening in Galway over the last Galway. while? There's a lot of social media stuff, isn't there? Yeah. So the situation in Galway is such that this has been kind of an ongoing issue. Um, it's suspected that this is linked to a feud between two different groups. Um, but what actually is unfolding in Galway is quite shocking in a sense that you have last Friday, 20 past three in the afternoon between Air Square and Shop Street, main busy thoroughfare, Galway City, the life and soul of Galway City, you could argue. And you have people openly fighting, you know, 
squaring up to one another, having a, a downright fight. It leads to dozens more people turning up. I think they estimated around 50 people in total were involved in the incident on Friday. And you have tourists and you have people in doing their messages sort of just kind of coming upon this mm. scene. And it's quite hostile and quite dangerous. Um, separate to that, which I think is even probably more shocking, is what happened on Monday evening. Um, you have a car park at a shopping uh, shopping centre in the Headford Road and you have a car speeding around the car park and just running two people over as part of this whole feud. And the mayor of Galway has been really clear in just saying someone is going to die in this, whether it's somebody who's involved in the feud or just an innocent bystander who just happens to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. These are incidents that are happening, like I say, three o'clock in the afternoon, six o'clock in the evening, in places that just regular people are out doing their business and frequenting. And, you know, there's a level of, you know, disregard, I suppose, among people in terms of like not just because perhaps whatever's going on between the row, between people, they're not aware of their surroundings. They, there doesn't seem to be any care or consideration. Like they're not containing mm. the row to, you know, their back garden or their house. Like they're taking these rows out onto the street, into public spaces. And it's a huge issue. You know, it's it's like, I mean, it's just, it seems at this point that uh, the guards have a major job on their hand in Galway. You wonder, to really get this under control. is that the kind of instance that the notional response of having armed guards on standby, is it supposed to deal with that kind of activity? Because even if it is, to be honest, I'm, I'm not sure that there's enough respect for law enforcement or that people that are involved in this kind of behaviour have any kind of real give any real credence to, to guards anyway. Yeah. Uh, but the it, video, but Gavin. The videos are certainly... No, I know. I, I did see the video of the car park. They're, they're, they're still clipped. fighting and they're just tossing the guards away. Like, you know, it's it's horrifying. It's, yeah. Yeah. But this is the point that I think that they ultimately know if you've already got that little kind of respect or general contempt yeah. for the organs of the state anyway, if you know that an, even an armed guard is, that's like even the, discharging a weapon is going to be such a last resort for any guard that they're almost certainly never going to do it. And like even if they were going to discharge a weapon, what exact behaviour do you need to be guilty of before they'd even contemplate doing that? And like, you know, we've seen before in instances where, the, the rare instances where guards use weapons and, and how controversial and contentious it becomes and how it becomes debated and litigated for years afterwards. Like, there's a very reactionary thing that says, oh, just arm the guards, send in the army. Yeah. Like, yeah. As, as if they, A, they will ever directly intervene to that extent and B, that the people that they're trying to tackle Give a crap. And I don't know if that's the answer, is it really, in fairness? I don't know. Like, we sort of more... But like this idea of bringing the army, like it seems quite mm, excessive, well doesn't it? That's, I mean, well, that's like, sure we've, we've talked about bringing the army as being the one and the, yes, the holy solution. Rumor. Single transferable <laughs> solution. The biggest WhatsApp rumour in the history yeah. of WhatsApp rumours. But, yeah. but like there is a, probably a point to be made there because there is always a lot of um, public talk. The guard unions will do a lot of it just to spokespeople for different parties, whether they are in government or in opposition, will always say, we need to equip Guardi with better equipment, whether that's you know, more better stab vests or tasers. It was um, the touching stone for a while. And there's body cams as well, which actually the Guardi were off demonstrating what they're looking to procure uh, today as part of that. But you always have to be careful with some of these things because if you're trying to actually have a considered and a holistic debate about what is actually needed for public safety, you can't just listen to one side of the story. And mm-hmm. one side of the story can't be the Guardi unions and um, opposition spokespeople uh, for justice because it will be you will be politicians talk about they try to get the unions on side do you know what I mean mm. if you're a Sinn Féin's justice spokesperson or your Labour's justice spokesperson or your whatever mm-hmm. you'll be like yeah give give the guards more whatever yeah. they need equipment blah 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 because you want to be seen to be on the side of the law and order and all that sort of stuff mm-hmm. but you do need to see and you need to look at studies from other parts of the world where if you give more weapons effectively what they are yeah. not 
deadly weapons in many cases mm-hmm. um, that the, it, it, it may not always work as intended there will always be backfiring to these situations it's something which always tends to just get dropped out of the debate mm-hmm. but it needs to be looked at anyway um, we start, talked a little bit about the political issues there but you touched on something Gavin about a sort of a lack of regard a lack of fear around Gardaí mm. I would say that at this moment in time and we actually touched upon it briefly at Lecture Picnic as well mm. that there is a huge pressure on the Gardaí in terms of the overall environment at the moment and that is not just from people who are hostile to Gardaí or who would not care about Gardaí or do not care about law enforcement but I think there's a huge deal of scrutiny on the Gardaí in a way that I don't think has ever happened really before mm. there's a huge level of like there's a magnifying glass over what incidents Gardaí are responding to whether that be the Bank of Ireland situation with the ATMs yeah. uh, whether that be being on the scene of evictions which are taking place as we saw mm. reported in, in Waterford at the weekend that's already pro- yeah. prompted another political Protesting backlash libraries exactly yeah. yeah there's a lot of things which <clears throat> Gardaí are doing or they turn up at which is now under the spotlight in a way that's never before so mm. I think the leadership of the Gardaí has been criticised there's a lot of historically there was a huge deference there for the guards wasn't yeah. there mm. there was a huge level of these are the guards they're part of us they're a civilian police force they're just looking out for everybody. Yeah. I think now they're being second-guessed in a way which has never happened before, which is probably healthy for democracy. But you can feel the weight of that criticism and the uncomfortableness, mm. I think, within Ungarda Chiyakana at that. But it is difficult then for the guard on the beat doing the job then for yeah. that reason. And that's why we're seeing more guards making the decisions to just pack the job in. Because like when you talk about that, right, stripping it back to its basic level and you think back to even let's go back 20 years, 30 years, like the guard in the community was a respected member of the community and was somebody who people, you know, there was a different attitude towards guards, as you say, 30 years ago. Mm. And it was, and that made doing the job, you would imagine, a lot more accessible. It made community policing more accessible. It meant that people probably had closer relationships with their guards. And like, even from that perspective, like talking to one of the guards during the week about just having that in community intelligence, having that relationship with communities that people knew you well enough that they'd want to chat to you and have a relationship with you. All of that seems to have changed, as you say, Richard, and guards are coming up against probably more negative attitudes, I would say, in recent times. And, you know, that does make doing the job incredibly difficult. I think it's probably, I'm not saying this is a single issue excuse, but it's probably down to the fact that populations have now become so big and the population of communities is that little bit more transient that it probably was the case that back in the day in a smaller community where a guard was assigned to the area, they were there for years. Everyone got a chance to know everyone. Now, you might only be renting in an area for a couple of years and move on. The guard moves. You just don't have a chance to grow roots. Yeah. And that might be then a lot to do with it. Uh, and one person who is feeling this pressure is Drew Harris. Of course, we've heard all the way throughout the summer about uh, the fact that rank and file guardy have been expressing views of no confidence on him. So there's another man who's on the hot seat as a result of all of this. Well, after the summer recess, it's a return to politics as usual. To quote one Jay-Z. But Gavin, you've been welded to the shadow of wow. Michael Martin. Never have Jay-Z and Gavin been put in the same sentence. <laughs> Own it, honey. Own it. It's, it's, it's two complimentary things coming together. But you've been welded effectively to the shadow of Michael Martin from yeah. the halls of Jerusalem. Yeah. With a horse and jockey over the course mm. of this week. Uh, two very similar Rarely have they been put in the same sentence. Yeah. Exactly. But let's, let's talk for a second first about thinking season. Um, it sort of sets the tone for what happens over mm. autumn and winter to come. Yeah. And obviously so much of this year's build-up has been all towards the budget. So, mm-hmm. I mean, we got another sight of a testy Micheál Martin uh, in front of the media this week. Why was that? Uh, why was he testy? Was, these are the yeah. questions about whether he might at some point govern with Sinn Féin and giving very long, testy answers, none of which amounted to a no, like mm-hmm. highlighting inconsistencies or things that would be tough to square, but not actually saying no. Uh, that's Micheál Martin, by the way, learning the uh, the lessons of uh, elections past. I mean, I might do that some other time. Yeah. Um, Thinkins, what, what are they for? 
is a real question. And uh, for smaller parties, for opposition parties, they are basically manufacturing a, radio, uh, a reason to be in the media. Uh, particularly if you are like not so much Sinn Féin because Sinn Féin have a good reason to be in the media a lot anyway. But if you are Labour or the Social Democrats or people before Profit Solidarity and you struggle to be heard in a mm. crowded media space, if you say, right, today we are doing a big thing and we invite everyone to come to our thing, it's effectively a way of of guaranteeing some airtime for yourself and for your prominent spokespeople. Is it sort of a then um, sort of an unwritten contract that you, between all the political parties that are like, oh right, we're all just going to do these things which aren't essential mm. in any real way, but you you'll have your day, Greens, and you'll have your yeah. day, Social Democrats. Is there uh, kind of a bit of that? Ordinarily, and mm. I do know that in the past there has been a little bit of like, when are they on so that they can plan stuff? And it's easier within coalition because they're directly talking to each other, but opposition parties don't have that forum, so they you sometimes use the media as a go-between going, if we were to organise something now on Tuesday, would there be anything on? Um, this year, it's uh, really madly crammed because with the UN General Assembly going on next week, the Taoiseach, the Taunashta, Eamon Ryan, Stephen Donnelly, possibly others are, are all going to New York. So they're not available next week. So on Friday of this week, uh, Labour, Sinn Féin, Fine Gael and the Greens all have their thinkings all on the same day, which somewhat undermines the idea of having mm. the event so that you can guarantee your 15 minute marquee slot That's on Morning Fine Ireland. Fine didn't try and organise something themselves. Uh, Fine Gael's is Friday and Saturday and Labour's is Thursday and Friday, uh, mm. which is is uh, instigating a lot of mm. intrigue among a lot of people as to why a party with uh, seven TDs and, and a couple of senators do they feel the need to have it over a two-day event? But so they do. And the Social Democrats are on Thursday and then everyone else is, is sort of crammed into the Friday. But it is largely a function of the General Assembly being on and everyone being away. Um, but yeah, ordinarily to answer the question, there is a little bit of uh, manoeuvring where everyone yeah. tries to make sure that they get their their one ring fence today. Because mm. if the point of it for the smaller parties is to maximise your pre-Doyle airtime, mm. then of course it makes sense that they'd all take turns doing it. How much of the budget will come down to what's actually hashed out at these thinkings. I mean, if they're a bit more under pressure at the mm. moment, you're hearing a few news lines out about, well, we might cut the USC, we might mm. do this, we're going to up the pension, surprise, surprise, surprise. Mm. But like, is there any actual things done or is this a bit of a wish list and a bit of a, let's put a few, we'll fl fly a few kites for the media there and we'll see what sticks. It's, it's not even so much flying kites for the media. A lot of it's flying kites among the backbenchers in each party because yeah. the budget can't be written at things like this because, you know, Pascal Donoghue and Michael McGrath, who ultimately do the final deal, are not at the same event this week. So they're only talking to their own rank and file. So there might be a little bit when you go into the room of how would people feel about the following tax treatment of landlords? Do we think that would work? How would you all feel about this? And kind of reading the mood in the room and then seeing, right, is that a, a policy that's worth bringing forward so that it could ultimately be voted through the doll without any issues when, when push comes to shove? So it's, it's really more about trying to get their own troops and, and to a certain degree almost feedback on any ideas because I think ministers know to a point although they'll never admit it out loud they all know that they are guilty of a certain amount of ivory tower syndrome mm. and that they actually need having all their backbenchers spending their summers in their constituencies they actually need to go back and get them to assess what the mood is what is the one the one priority that we desperately need to tick you know I know the last time we talked about Fianna Fáil, I think it might have been their Ordesh we talked about them having no identity or no sense of who they are where mm. they were going <clears throat> has that changed do you think since then? Uh, this That's a really fascinating question because uh, a budget time is obviously one of those things where every party is trying to put in stuff that they get to claim credit for mm. 
but they're also actively, publicly going out of their way to say, no, that this, you can't just have individual departments talking in silos. Actually, Michael McGrath specifically said this when he was talking to the media on Tuesday morning. Um, you can't have individual departments deciding, all right, this is what we're going to do because they might all end up kind of catering to the same corners of society and you need to have some kind of overarching approach so that the whole thing seems coherent. But this is a very sensitive time because this is the last budget before the local and European elections next June. Uh, and depending on when the general election is, this this could prospectively be the last budget before the country goes to the polls and elects the next Doyle. So simultaneously, you've got parties that are sort of behind the scenes trying to say, right, that's our thing now. We we got that sorted out. We, Fianna Fáil were responsible for that, not Fine Gael or vice versa, or the Greens being able to hang their hats on something. But publicly... They have to be all like, no, 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 this is coherent. This is all a very ensemble kind of a movement here. You I know? do think the Greens, I was with Roger Gorman last week and he was talking about how this is going to be a children's budget, a budget for children. So I can see already the Greens are teeing themselves up for that mm. sort of... Mm. Budget, for children, budget for children, but also a budget to some degree for landlords because, for example, and this... You don't know, sell it like well, that. <laughs> don't sell it like that. <laughs> children I don't think, and landlords. I don't Here's advice for free. Don't sell it as <laughs> the budget for landlords. That is the A2 banner <laughs> when, you, when you fold out the budget on, on the day. Um, but like this was a thing last year. You know, people <laughs> remember the introduction of the renter's tax credit last year. So 500 yeah. euro for, for the year. If you're a renter, you could claim it back as a, a tax refund. But there was nothing last year for small landlords. And the government was actively looking at, well, what do we do to try and get small landlords to stay in the system and not sell up and therefore reduce the stock of rental properties in the country? And uh, Dara O'Brien specifically said, this is a thing I want to do. Behind the scenes, he and Pascal Dunn, who couldn't agree on what was the appropriate way to do it or what wouldn't be open to exploitation. And so it never got done. Mm. This time around, he's trying to do that thing of it being an ensemble thing, but also saying, well, Michael McGrath is responsible for tax now. And he also agrees that we need to do something to sort out the landlords. So it's that kind of little, very, really deft maneuvering where you get to take individual party responsibility, even though it is supposed to be an ensemble approach. Richard, do you think that's like the, is that a productive step towards the housing crisis and, and resolving the housing crisis? Or do you think that's just sort of, uh, I mean, because well, I'll tell you what, I, right? I'll tell you a thought I had recently. Just this, I'm just spitballing here, here but go. I did have a thought recently when I was looking at, around on Daft. There's a lot of brand new build houses available for rent on Daft in Dublin. Like these are houses that technically the likes of the help to buy and stuff Is should built, be. Are they built rent houses, are they? No, these are a lot of these are like owned by like basically big companies that have just basically gone in and bought like multiple okay, of, yeah, of like yeah. new houses and are now like renting them out. And you're kind of going... But like, were they not supposed to be bought by, you know, young couples that were supposed mm -hmm. to be getting mm -hmm. helped by the government to buy them? Like, why yeah. are they now belong to this, a lot of, yeah. like, I've seen so many of those. Why are they belong to investors now? And they're brand new houses that people should have been able to get the help to buy them. Yeah, yeah. I do think this is just going to be something. I know Fianna Fáil are feeling pretty decent about themselves at the moment in a way that they haven't in a good few years. Mm. But I feel they have such a problem when it comes down to young people, when it comes around to whether we go to the polls next year yeah. or the year after mm -hmm. or even this year, some mad heads have suggested yeah, we might so, so do. people think if the but budget is enough of a giveaway, you just couldn't run. We're not doing it. It's not happening. not going to happen. I hope not. Anyway, not I'm not ready for it. Christmas, but no. uh, the fact is, uh, Fianna Fáil's Darrell O'Brien is very unpopular amongst members of the general public, particularly younger people, who Micheál Martin keeps on trying to say, we're doing this for younger people and mm. trying to get them into, into, into houses and into places where they can live. And it just is not working. This is and why it's not working and people are not buying it so they can send yeah. out whatever message and however way they want to spin can things I, in the budget. Can I it's pick up on trouble. something you've just said there though? Like, can I ask you, Gavin, how much of this is about like that element of popularity and people needing to be on board with, with an individual, with a politician that's selling a policy? Because so much of, you know, so much of this is about whether people are investing or believe you and believe that you're like, let's be honest, like Ono Brin is very popular with a certain amount of people. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. like he has a kind of a, a following, particularly among young people who are the most directly affected by the housing crisis. And so it's 
like how much of it comes down to having to be you know, well-liked essentially by the public? Uh, that's an, another interesting question because in a, a three-party coalition, ostensibly it shouldn't really matter who the person is because what you're doing actually has the imprimatur and the input of all three of the parties anyway. So it shouldn't really make that much difference. I mean, for example, there was that, that complaint that what Dara O'Brien is doing now looked very similar to what Owen Murphy was doing and what Simon Coveney was doing because mm. when it's all ultimately the same policy, then the personalities don't matter. Wh- which is interesting because... That's an argument put by Owen O'Brien, mm. whose personal popularity would probably make sure that anything he does is popular irrespective of the merits of mm. the impact it kind of makes on the market, so to speak. Just to, to go very quickly back to the tax question, you know, trying to make sure that those who can't afford a home, how they benefit from the budget. That's the reason why Fianna Fáil wants to look at USC, because if you change USC, it benefits people at a lower point in their incomes. Like Fine Gael are talking all the time about tax cuts for people on the average full-time wage which is about forty eight or 49000 a year. If you don't earn that, the tax cut doesn't matter that much to you. But if you cut the USC rates or the USC bans, that, Im- that impacts a load more people, particularly those who aren't on the average full-time wage. One thing just to round off the, the domestic politics situation is I actually do think that young people are it is policies which I think is driving most of their anger at the moment. If you look even, for example, at the, uh, the eviction ban, the comments made by Green Party Housing spokesperson mm. recently saying, comparing, you know, if we kept the eviction ban, yeah. it would be like living in a communist country. The level of fury which was released as a result mm. of that will tell you a lot about where people are on policy. And I just think that people just don't, uh, younger people mm. just aren't happy with what's been put but over it, the I think it, it's anger with the government as yes, a collective rather exactly. than specifically at that O'Brien, which was my point. Gavin, did Michal Martin solve Middle East? No. Right. Amazingly. Uh, an Irishman who going over from a country that the Israelis generally think is being biased against them no. was not able to solve a millennia old conflict. No. Did it help in any way that on the eve of his visit to the Middle East, uh, the Department of Foreign Affairs released a statement saying that it would demonstrate Ireland's uh, com- strong commitments to, to anti-Semitism? anti-Semitism. Yes. Not well, against anti-Semitism. I think we can all understand what they were trying to get across. But the what was slightly more unfortunate in that instance is that having been alerted to the rather unfortunate typo within the press release, that the Department of Foreign Affairs then retracted and reissued a second press release, specifically pointing you to the paragraph where they had changed a word, which, as all members of the media will know, is basically a red rag to a bull pointing out the single thing that shouldn't have been said first time around. Um, It was a really fascinating trip, though, because the, the ostensible purpose was... Michal Martin represents one of the few European governments that still reckons that it actually cares about what's going on in the Middle East. The perception among Irish diplomats is that other European countries have just kind of gotten bored or disengaged with the whole thing, Mm -hmm. with what's been going on in Ukraine, for example. They just don't have the bandwidth to pay attention to what's happening in the Middle East. Ireland is one of the few countries that they reckon is still involved. And the point was... Michal Martin goes out and maybe just tries to like stir the pot a little bit just to try and engender a little bit more interest in other European capitals. But it's always going to be a losing battle because the few European countries that Ireland thinks are also interested are all the same countries that the Israelis think are biased against them. Mm. So if you want somebody who is also interested and who thinks could maybe be a bit of an honest broker and try to bring two sides together... Ireland were never going to be it. And I mean, there was some perception, I think I remember you telling me, telling us that there was a feeling in diplomatic circles amongst the Israelis, there was a bit of fear that Michal Martin would use this visit to mm. declare that Ireland would recognise the state of Palestine, mm. which, as Fianna Fáil leader in Fianna Fáil just a few years ago, was trying to fast yeah. track a dull motion he's, on he's this. He's tried to instigate mm. that twice. I mean, yeah. it, it strikes any 
impartial observer as has he lost the bottle on that that particular notion? So the programme for government negotiated in 2020 effectively fudges that where previously Fianna Fáil were fully in favour of it and got the doll to say so twice. Now they say that they will act upon that when a critical mass of other EU member states will also do so. That effectively it's the one big diplomatic bazooka that you've got and they want to make sure that they use it at the opportune time. But that, the timing wasn't right. Yeah, but, but then, which is a tricky thing then mm. to try and sell to the Palestinians because you're going over there. The person has to go first, so why not? Why well, not this was else? it that I, I yeah. put that to him. I said, listen, we've got this long-standing policy. They've done it twice under your leadership. Why, why won't you do it? If you want what's referred to as the two-state solution where a globally recognised Israel and a globally recognised Palestine mm. live peacefully side by side, then doesn't that entail you having to recognise Palestine? So why don't you do it now? You know, that, couldn't that inject the impetus that you need? And he said, oh, but maybe it might not inject the impetus we need. Uh, we know, we don't know. So like, but it is that, that yeah. kind of like Augustine thing of like, make me chase, but not yet. Like, let, let us recognise the Palestinians, but at some point in the future, which made it a really an interesting visit because every other time you follow Irish diplomats or Irish uh, politicians abroad, it's always about buttering up the country you're going to. It's about, you know, look at all our common threads, look at all our trade and jobs and whatnot. Yeah. And Mihal Martin was going over to tell the Israelis that they're bang out of order and going over to tell the Palestinians that he favours their statehood but isn't going to actually mm. recognise it for a little while. Yeah, Daniel Murray in the Business Post was started making the point. He's like, well, what was ultimately was the point of all this? But Gav, before we, before we leave it, what, he somehow fluffed a fairly... It's a bit of a softball of a question around Damon de Valera and Adolf <laughs> Hitler. Uh, but he seems to have fluffed that somewhat. Yeah, what a sequence of words. A softball question about Devin Hitler. Um, so he was asked uh, about the perception among many Israelis that Ireland hates Israel. Mm. And that's a very strong word, but it is actually the perception among a lot of people. One of the most prominent English language media outlets in Israel is the Jerusalem Post, which is quite conservative and very hardline on its views about Israel's right to exist. And they repeatedly say Ireland hates Israel. And one of the examples that they go back to is the fact that in 1945, after the death of the Fuhrer Adolf Hitler, that Eamon de Valera went to the German embassy and offered condolences to the German ambassador on Ireland's behalf, notionally because Ireland was a neutral state. And Michal Martin was asked, you know, well, was that a bad idea? Should we not have done that? And partly, I suppose, because, you know, Fianna Fáil runs in his DNA, that Michal Martin just could not bring himself to fully condemn uh, what Eamon de Valera was doing. Interestingly, though, uh, diplomats pointed out afterwards, there is an Eamon de Valera forest just outside Nazareth, planted by uh, American Jews uh, shortly after Israel got its nationhood because they saw Eamon de Valera as being one of the few European leaders of the time who actually had a, a place in his heart for them. There you go. Little factoid there to end that. Gav doing Gav things. There we go. <laughs> it's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. 
It was one of the sporting stories of the summer. It was the Women's World Cup and it captured, I think, the world's attention in a way that uh, women's tournament had failed to previously, not for want of trying. But what really was disappointing, I think, in the aftermath of it, notwithstanding the Irish position, which ended up being its all separate basket case there of its own, was what happened at the final whistle and in the presentation for when Spain won the World Cup. And that was that. Yeah. That was Jenny Hermoso getting kissed against her uh, wishes by the president of the Spanish FA, Luis Rubiales, who uh, dug himself into an enormous bunker there for three weeks saying, doing his full uh, Leo DiCaprio, Wolf of Wall Street thing, I'm not leaving, briefing the media that he was going to uh, res resign, bringing people, the, the world's media, into a press conference where he said, actually, no, I'm not resigning, I'm digging in and here's why. And then the whole thing falling apart, the coach uh, resigning, although there's separate things involved in that too. Uh, the heads of the regional football associations in Spain all saying that they had no confidence in him. The whole thing uh, falling to bits, loads of people being ultimately disciplined. And then uh, in an act, of, the final act of reputational salvage, Luis Rubiales finally announcing uh, his departure as the head of the Spanish FA in an interview with Piers Morgan, mm. which I think was deft because it was maybe the only circumstance in which Rubiales might not have been uh, the most problematic person in the world. <laughs> uh. I, um, I didn't watch the whole interview with Piers Morgan. I obviously saw some of the clips that were circulating around. Uh, what did you think? I mean, was that, was like who, he was obviously going to Piers Morgan to try and sort of scrape back some level of I think he thought it would be a soft place to go. And it probably was. I think anywhere else internationally he would have gone. Yeah. He would have been pushed a lot more. Mm -hmm. I think he would have. Mm. Uh, I think Piers was sort of softball because he just wanted to get the quotes. I think Piers Morgan in conducting interviews with a lot of people of his big interviews on his new employer mm -hmm. has done very, very soft and very fawning interviews. You look back to even the Cristiano Ronaldo interview he did on his oh, yeah. his, his platform yeah. before. He's not a he's not the, the interviewee that he used to be. Um, so and is that do you think because partially that that's the terms of the agreement to get someone to sign up yeah. to do an interview like that? I think that, it is. I think you kind of have to agree to you know, which is always problematic, really, if you're agreeing to not ask certain questions that are important. But we're not saying that he did, but I'm just saying, I wonder, is that part of some of the terms? You know, mm. otherwise, why wouldn't he have given the interview, as you say, to someone even back home? Maybe why didn't he stay back home yeah. to do an interview? To, to give it to an English language outlet was a kind of a curious was unusual. Thing. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's become an international scandal. I mean, you mentioned, Gav, that it was sort of re an attempted reputation salvage. I don't think he has much of a reputation no. internationally True. Le yet le left to salvage. He spoke in the interview about how he'd made the decision finally to resign after weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks of international pressure on him and that includes political pressure from Spain which is actually quite interesting as well because of his daughters he thought about his daughters who he has used now as a human shield after mm. clearly over the last three four weeks beforehand not thinking about them mm. then if that's the implication um, the former Hamil Hamilton academics uh, centre-back I understand is where he used to play, <laughs> play his trade where he was serenaded by Rangers fans as a baldy b-word uh, and he was not uh, regarded as a popular footballer and then became a very unpopular uh, football administrator as well. So uh, Olga Car Carmona, who actually scored the winner in the World Cup final, uh, she has given her reaction about to the Piers Morgan interview. Mm. She just says, the players and everybody, I think, in, linked to women's football, is just angry that what had been an incredible tournament mm. has now become remembered for this one thing. Yeah. Yeah. And it has been. And what's been interesting is, and I think the positive, if there is a positive to be taken from it, is that it has sparked a conversation in Spain that has never happened before and that it always threatened to happen. There'd been a lot of protests around sexual assault and the role of women in Spain mm. in recent years, but now it's built up to a critical mass. 
Uh, so like Me Too hadn't kind of reached the same sort of critical levels there as it had done in the English speaking. No, world. and it's, it's it's been a country that has been a couple of years behind Ireland, I think, in this regard as well, mm. uh, which is interesting to see. You had all the political pressure from Pedro Sanchez's socialist government. Yeah. Uh, all of them were calling for him to go. You have now Rubiales so will have to appear in court on Friday mm. uh, where he will have to testify in front of a judge on this because there could still be criminal charges mm. as a result of all of this. So this has all started a bigger conversation in Spain, which is something which has been long overdue there um, but it is again as we say an eternal shame that what has been the most watched women's football tournament of all time yeah. mm-hmm. it led to the most watched women's team sport event in our country ever uh, has just been washed away yeah. because male football administrators have just wrecked the shop entirely I did see actually I, I must go back and find this is coming to mind as we're talking here I did see somebody sharing um, some kind of clip or some kind of campaign where they um I'm not going to explain this very well, I know, but basically where they're showing men being asked questions that women will be asked to press Yeah, I think some people might have seen this already This is online. so good. I was like, this is such an important, it was just a 30 second clip or whatever. And it was, you know, questions like, oh, your skin is glowing. What's your routine lately? Or, you know, your, where did you get your, your shorts? Or, you know, and it was like, if men were asked the kind of questions that women were asked at sports press conferences, you know, it's just basically the whole point is like, we need to do better. Even mm. as media, we need to do better to just focus on the game and focus on, on what's actually happening on the field instead of the, the sideshow like this. We are aware of the pain that has been caused by the character letters that we wrote on behalf of Danny Masterson. We support victims. We have done this historically through our work and will continue to do so in the future. A couple months ago, Danny's family reached out to us and they asked us to write character letters to represent the person that we knew for 25 years so that the judge could take that into full consideration relative to the sentencing. The letters were not written to question the legitimacy of the judicial system or the validity of the jury's ruling. They were intended for the judge to read um, and not to undermine the testimony of the victims or re-traumatize them in any way. We would never want to do that. And we're sorry if that has taken place. Our heart goes out to every single person who's ever been a victim of sexual assault sexual abuse or rape. Ashton Kutcher and Mila Kunis apologising or half apologising depending on who you ask for writing character letters on behalf of fellow That 70s Show actor Danny Masterson ahead of his sentencing for rape. A judge in Los Angeles last week sentenced him to 30 years to life in prison for raping two women in 2003. What's happened here as a result of this has been a broader conversation on character letters or character references, character testimonials Mm. in instances of sentencing for people who are convicted of sexual assaults and rape. And the backlash which those two celebrities have suffered mm. has been huge and I think it speaks to a huge public outcry about how these are admitted in court. I don't understand the words that they said there. They were only meant to be read by the judge and not by what someone else. Who, who did they think they were supposed to be influencing then? Yeah. Like I, I don't understand what their what their apparent like mea culpa or their, their explanation is. Like I, I just don't I, I can't fathom what it is they're trying to say there. It also sounds like they were asked like several months ago by the family to do it and there was an element of oh, like this is our friend and it was more like I, I think the fact that they're trying to separate out writing the letter of oh we just wrote about the person that we knew and the person that we've known for a really long time it was like as if they didn't factor in the charges that were attached to the individual when they were writing the letter which mm. like let's be honest no matter how close you are to somebody and no matter how you feel about them, you have to consider when you are asked to do something like this, the charges that that person is facing and the yeah. consequences and, and the victims at the centre of that. So in many ways, 
were they quite naive do you think Richard or was it well I think it's very clear I think you're both sort of alluding to mm. the fact that I don't think either of them thought that these letters would ever be published I think that's I think is is, is something which I'm gleaming from the way that they've responded to mm. the controversy but this practice is something I think it's a good learning moment because it is something we've seen here in this country a backlash to the use of these letters I think it was Mr Justice David Keane last year in the High Court said that anybody is providing a character reference in such a way in a letter they should have to come to court for cross-examination. Yeah. And what's actually going to happen now is that this is actually timed itself very well because one of the things which happened over the summer was the publication uh, of the draft text of the Criminal Law, Sexual Offences and Human Trafficking Bill of 2023 around the vo- vouching of character evidence. So, previously where you would have had these things where you can write a letter as Ashton Kutcher and Mila Kunis did mm. uh, in support of someone who's been sentenced for a sexual assault or rape um, that they would give this and they wouldn't have to swear an oath over it. It was basically, you could just do this. There's nothing, you don't have to swear or stand over the veracity of anything you're saying in the letter. And people will be familiar with those because you hear them being, you know, read out. You might have a high profile GAA figure, for yes. example, provides a character reference because said, oh, sure, this person played under me. And sure, I, I thought they were a fine fella. And I'm very surprised to hear about this. And it all kind of seems pointless other than to maybe create the image in a judge or a prosecutor's mind that actually they're not totally rotten. And it has been the case, and you will hear this in, in victim impact statements and from people who have gone through this process, that the reading out of these letters or the admission of these letters can be hugely traumatising for the victims of sexual offences. Uh, basically, you have people her- heralded again as being great pillars of the mm. community, all mm. of that sort of stuff, yeah. uh, when they have been the victims themselves of heinous, heinous crimes. So what's going to change as part of this is that the new provision will require that where a person has been convicted of a sexual offence, character references presented at sentencing must be made via oath or affidavit. This will ensure that the person providing the reference swears to the veracity of the statement and the rationale is then to protect the victims from that re-traumatisation. It could in fact then lead to people being cross-examined for the character references they provide. If you're going to provide a reference for somebody who's being sentenced Mm. for committing a horrible sexual offence, you may well be challenged over what you say. So you can't just write sort of an empty glowing reference for somebody without any sort of questioning of that. Yeah, being being unaccountable for afterwards. The one concern I'd have about that is that if the idea is to avoid people being re-traumatised by having to like convince people again and again and again that they were actually the victims of of a horrible offence. I just hope that the prospect of somebody who provides a character reference not undergoing sustained court questioning doesn't inadvertently do the same thing. Because Mm -hmm. you could have a situation where even after a, a conviction and then you're going through the sentencing bit, if someone is still sitting there watching someone give a long winded and challenged personal testimony of support in favour of the convicted person could be very, very difficult for a victim to sit through. Potentially, but as well as that, I think I think what this might serve as is a deterrent from people just handing these in willy-nilly. Mm. Yeah. Uh, is that you won't just go and say, well, nothing can come back and bite me on this. I've been asked by a family member as, you know, yeah. Kutcher and Kunis might have been said they were mm. to talk about the person that they knew and the relationship they had with them. I think that this is going to change that and it's going to be interesting to see how it does play out mm. when it does actually become law. But it do anything which can be used to safeguard people in these situations because lawyers and judges have been crying out about this for a long time as well as the victims mm, and that yeah. is the voice that should be heard the most in this but they've been crying out this because they see this as something which has failed the victims of crime in our legal system and it isn't the first time that something like this has happened so it's yeah. going to be interesting to see how that works out yeah. that's just one of those interesting times when something which happens in the sort of the entertainment world mm. and celebrity world actually has something which is actually very interesting to watch over yeah. here so we'll watch that if as a play as a teachable moment really yeah, so um, that's all we really have time for in this one uh, of the group chat. Our nice first one back. back. We have a lot of issues we want to talk about this year, though. We have a lot of things we want to get back on because actually something we feed it back on 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 
in terms of people on social media as well as Electric Picnic, people want a few more things around climate change, something I think we'll be talking to in, yeah. re- in weeks to come, yeah. and stuff around drugs legislation as well. I think, yeah, we are, yeah. Uh, we have, we have, our boots are set to fill here. <laughs> We're just hesitating. <laughs> those, those are the kinks that we didn't work out when we had our electric breakthrough moment, yeah. uh, those talking over each other. Uh, but we should say for people who haven't found it in the podcast feed that a shortened version of the set that we did at Electric Picnic is available on our podcast feed. So if you go to Apple Podcasts yeah. or Spotify or wherever you get your podcast, you'll be able to hear a little bit of that as well. Uh, but I don't know, it's been great to be back. I, think I would say as well, just to kind of as Richard touched on there if there's things you want us to talk about we're very accessible you can contact any of us on social media get in touch let us know if there's stories that you'd like us to follow up on if there are issues that affect your life that you feel like really bother you day to day but you don't hear much about it on the news message one of us and let us know and let let us tackle it for you so also um, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts don't forget to rate review and leave a little comment. I love reading the comments. Mm. Do all those let's nice do a, Let's do a nice comment for the first one back. <laughs> Just be, be sound and be nice. We also yeah. will probably have more episodes this season. We're talking about bonus episodes. Yeah. So yeah. Sneaky audio only episodes to look out for yeah. in your podcasting feeds in the months to come. But I've been Richard Chambers. You've been Zara King. You've been Gavin Riley. You do have. Yeah. yeah. Thank you, Richard. We'll see you all again next week. Bye. Bye. infant formula companies use organic grass-fed whole milk instead of skim why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing we wondered the same thing so we made byheart a better formula for formula learn more at byheart.com